Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let me first start off by uh, offering you a little uh, proviso to all of that. My main area is Middle English literature. I only come to Dante really through, uh, I have had some experience teaching Dante to undergraduate classes in the past, but I've really truly only come into Dante studies really in the last couple of years, and that was really mainly forced by my duties as the head of the uh, TI Rome program. So if you want to know about that program, I'd be more than happy to, to uh, talk to you at the end of, uh, at the end of my lecture. Um, I'd just like to uh, start off, just start off with a prayer, just put all of this under the divine assistance here, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Direct, O Lord, we beseech you, all our actions by your holy inspirations, and carry them on by your gracious assistance, that every prayer and work of ours may begin always from you, and by you be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. St. Dominic. St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But you thought I was going to go into the litany of Dominican saints there. Um, so our topic tonight is Dante and Aquinas and the virtues, really. St. Thomas, Dante, and the virtues. And I'd just like to start off by mentioning uh, a very important Dominican teacher of moral theology by the name of Servet Pincares. Servet Pincares was a teacher at the Albertinum in Fribourg, Switzerland, and uh, he wrote a very influential work called The Sources of Christian Ethics, which was published in the late 80s in French and then translated and is still on offer from CUA Press. Um, in, it was first published in English in 95. And in that book, he states that since the time of Occam, William of Occam, the focus in uh, Catholic moral theology has mainly been on divine command and on positive law as an understanding of Catholic moral life. He on the other hand, he also states that the heart of Christian ethics during that period, uh, roughly from the end of the Middle Ages until the modern era, 
is that, that the heart of that Christian teaching has been on the Ten Commandments, seeing the Ten Commandments as the heart of Christian and Catholic teaching on moral theology. There's, uh, this is also freighted with an understanding of human freedom as a kind of freedom of indifference, he calls it. What does he mean by that? He means simply that the freedom to choose between two uh, different goods or several different goods, there's a series of competing goods that we need to choose between. We need to manage our way through the various minefields of accommodating choices of alternatives in order to live the good life. It's a matter of choosing not this but that, not that but this. So the main thesis of Pinker's work is that Catholic moral theology since Occam and Scotus has become unmoored from its original basis, which respected the Christian view of human action leading to an end action which would lead to an end in ultimate happiness in beatitude. By beatitude, I'm just using another word for happiness. But of course, in modern English culture, if you mention happiness, people begin to think of Pollyanna. And uh, they begin to think of, of nothing but smiles and cheers. This is, of course, not what's meant by beatitude. Beatitude, that um, kind of fulfillment fulfillment of life. And it draws on a tradition that goes right back to Aristotle, really back to Plato and Aristotle, talking about the aim of the human life as being happiness. He, uh, he uh, really promotes a return to the realist perspective of early and early high medieval uh, church teaching that Christian ethics uh, needs to be rooted in the Beatitudes, first and foremost, as that first teaching which Christ himself gave in the Sermon on the Mount. But it needs to be characterized by an elevation of the natural virtues to a divine and supernatural end. In other words, he points to something which he calls a freedom for excellence. Freedom for excellence uh, by pursuing happiness as an end pursued in grace by means of the virtues. So he locates that end, a Christian end this time, not a this-worldly end, as we might see in some of the late classical uh, philosophers, uh, a, a next worldly end, which offers to us divine beatitudes and ultimate fulfillment of the human person. It's in light of this goal that we are meant to see the virtuous life as a life that is aimed at that happiness or blessedness. And in so seeing it, you can see that it's not just a matter of uh, coming up to the, the norms of a particular positive law. Rather than uh, merely fulfilling the dictates of a law and then seeing everything else 
as what was called what's called by uh, a lot of Catholic moral theologians supererogatory or something that's it's not really required. Right? Well, then how do we explain a virtue like charity? Charity has no upward limit in Christ's teaching. There is no upward limit of uh, you cannot love someone uh, too much if you're loving them charitably. So Pinkers proposes a return to the kind of classical uh, Christian doctrine on the virtues, which means that he can also explain in this freedom for excellence, he can also explain that our freedom is meant to pursue that excellence, that goal. And in so doing, we need not make this distinction between supererogatory acts or uh, extreme virtue. Uh, we need to see it more in terms of a vocation, as it were. Pinkers points to Augustine's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount as an important touchstone in this whole tradition. And he then uh, talks about St. Thomas's elaboration of this doctrine in light of his teaching on the virtues as, uh, as a kind of faithful and helpful, helpful expansion of what St. Augustine had to say. Dante, in his Divine Comedy, relies on much of this systematization of his own presentation in the Purgatorio, as we'll see in a, in, uh, a few moments. So tonight, what I'm going to be doing is using St. Thomas's Treatise on the Virtues in the Secunda Secunde Pars of Summa Theologiae as a point of comparison with Dante's Purgatorio, and especially the Cantos 9 to 27 in the Purgatorio. Um, so we need first to have a, this very general overview of this understanding of the, the graced moral life in Christ. And I'm not going to go through question by question through the, uh, through the, the second part of the Summa, um, the second book of the Summa, but uh, I'm just going to present some, uh, present a very general outline. So after St. Thomas presents the end of man and the, um, and the moral act, the, the outlines of what makes uh, an act a truly human act, something which is, is free and voluntary, um, he then delves into, um, in the uh, Secunda Secunda Pars, he then delves into the virtues, starting off by talking about the theological virtues and then the cardinal virtues. And he defines those virtues, and this is a somewhat adapted, um, uh, adapted definition, he begins the treatise on the virtues, really, right after he's defined the virtues in the Prima Secundae of uh, the Summa. He says that virtue is a stable, operative habit of mind, mind here meaning both the intellect and will, um, by which one lives rightly, disposing one and which, 
the virtue which which disposes one to do the good regularly, easily, and quickly. So this is his notion of virtue, an operative habit. Now, usually when we think of habits, we think of uh, smoking a cigarette, uh, an addiction to cigarettes, say, or alcohol or something like that. We might be able to understand good habits, though, as well, in terms of uh, something very natural and ordinary, like playing a concert pianist, playing the piano. That concert pianist comes a little closer to what Aquinas means by a virtue than, um, than, what, what, uh, than what he means as a habit, than what uh, we might think of when we're thinking ordinarily of a habit. The piano player practices day in and day out. Uh, he or she develops this habit of being able to play the piano. We might think of it nowadays as muscle memory, right? And he, he or she develops this habit and, and is able to approach any piano anywhere and is free now to play whatever... Uh, whatever she, you know, whatever she likes. So, so the pianist, the concert pianist, has developed a habit which leads to complete freedom. Freedom, or at least in this case, a relative kind of freedom to be able to play more difficult sorts of uh, pieces of music. If we look at something like cigarette smoking or... Uh, and addiction to something, chocolates, let's say. Um, uh, chocolates is always a, uh, a good choice. I think most everybody can understand an addiction to chocolate. Um, when we look at that, this is a merely, uh, uh, really, uh, merely a, a, a habituated taste. It is uh, purely sort of almost muscle memory in the sense that it's, it's simply feeding a need, a perceived need. And usually what happens is that we wind up uh, reaching for chocolates even when we're not really conscious about it. This kind of habit makes it very easy for us to do something mechanically uh, without very much thought and to do it without, uh, without really... Uh, great consideration. So, uh, I, I think, for example, of my, uh, my father, who told me that he had stopped smoking cigarettes for, I guess at the time he told me, it was around 30 years. And he would still find himself going to, uh, sitting down at his desk and opening up the drawer and reaching for something. And then he'd think, what, what am I reaching for? And then he'd realize, who's reaching for the cigarettes, right? This is something which is not conscious on his part. It was something that just became a kind of series of events, an almost Pavlovian reflex. What we mean, what St. Thomas means by virtue, is something that's completely the opposite of that. St. Thomas's notion of virtue involves an action which does not just become a reflex action, 
but we're also talking about a training of the whole person so that the habit that one develops is the habit not only of, of doing, performing an action, a performance kind of habit, but it is a habit of thinking and considering the moral object, developing uh, a whole series of uh, considerations and movement towards the object. Apprehension of the object as something which is good, willing the object as that good, willing the appropriate means for that object, and moving forward with it in the light of where that takes us in terms of ultimate beatitude. So a virtue, as St. Thomas conceives of it, is something which is more conscious rather than being less conscious. It becomes something which we would call co-natural to us. In other words, it involves a transformation of the, the psychology of the person so that we become habituated to choose the good, habituated to choose the good, and we do so uh, ra- uh, reasonably with our full freedom and intent. Does that make sense? Okay. So for St. Thomas, uh, a virtue as an operative habit is something that actually makes us more conscious of what we're doing, not less. Uh, and so it helps us to, to actually act. It makes our, our acts, in a certain sense, even more human because they're, they're reasoned out. They're, they are uh, chosen. St. Thomas breaks down the, uh, the virtues according to the system of the virtues that um, the system of the virtues that uh, St. Gregory the Great um, laid out faith, hope, and love, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. So those first three, faith, hope, and love, are the theological virtues, so-called, because they join us directly to God. They are the virtues by means of which we are, we are joined in our life to God. Uh, each of these virtues, and any virtue, as a matter of fact, according to St. Thomas, perfects the capacity of the human person. So um, faith obviously perfects the intellect. And um, drawing on the uh, commentary of St. Augustine on the, um, on the Sermon on the Mount, St. Thomas follows him and also linking to these virtues and their associated capacities, human capacities, the spiritual gifts which are mentioned in sacred scripture. And so he links to faith, which perfects the intellect, understanding, and knowledge. For hope, he, uh, which it perfects the will, he connects uh, fear of the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, what is all this fear of the Lord stuff? Um, does it mean we have to be afraid of God? Well, um, only in a related sense. What St. Thomas means by fear and what he, how he interprets that scriptural dictum is that 
Uh, the fear he means is a filial fear, he calls it. It is that fear that we have of offending someone, someone whom we love. And so that is, uh, it's not a fear of, of going to hell, which would be, we would call servile fear, fear of punishment. It's a filial fear associated with fear of offending the Lord, fear of doing something which is not his will, as it were. Closely allied to this is love, of course, which is also associated with the will as, um, as the uh, intellective appetite, as a, as a kind of hunger for the truth, right? to, to find the truth in the good. And he associates wisdom with love. He then continues with the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance in that order. Uh, prudence, obviously, is that, that virtue by which um, we come to an understanding of how uh, our uh, general moral understanding is to be applied in a particular instance in a particular situation, this uh, virtue is, of course, allied with the intellect. And he associates the uh, gift of counsel with it. Justice is perfective of the will. And the gift that he associates with justice may seem a little strange. It's piety. And you might ask why. Well, it's because for St. Thomas, uh, religion... And prayer are really placed under justice, because this is what we justly should be returning when we try to make a, a just return to God for all he has given to us. These are, these are the things that we need to, to consider, is prayer as a way of making that return. Um, those, uh, the, the whole virtue of religion is seen as part and parcel of justice. And so piety is the gift. Um, fortitude, uh, this is not just a virtue for those of you who are keen on going up to the gym and lifting weights. Um, fortitude is that virtue by which we are able to train our, what are called contending or irascible appetites. These capacities of the human spirit to fight for an arduous good, to fight for a good that that may take uh, a great deal of effort to get to. And, of course, the, the greatest of these, the greatest example of these is, is martyrdom. Um, if you're wondering, the concupiscible appetites, are, or so the irascible appetites, are um, hope and despair, <coughs> courage and fear, and then one that doesn't have a, a nice pairing is anger. Okay. Anger, you might think, what, we might always think of anger in negative terms, but uh, there can also be something which is known as righteous anger, right? Um, anger always arises from some sense of injustice. Injustice done to ourselves, we haven't got what is due to us, or injustice committed against someone who we care for. And so anger comes forth from that. Um, and anger is meant to fuel our fight, as it were, 
for what's just, what's true, what's good. Um, temperance, on the other hand, uh, deals with moderate <coughs> concupiscible appetites, which are um, aversion or desire, sadness or joy, hate or love. So um, this uh, moderates our uh, our desires. Usually, what when we think about this, uh, our uh, sins of the flesh, um, both sexual sins and uh, gluttony as well. So lust and gluttony. Uh, we usually think of temperances as moderating our, our appetites with respect to, uh, to, uh, to these things. Um, so uh, justice, by the, well, by the way, perfects the will. And in each case, St. Thomas starts by talking about the virtue as a perfection. And then he describes the, after, after he's, he's kind of gone through a whole study of, of what power of the soul this particular virtue perfects, he then goes into um, the opposed vices and the uh, spiritual gift, and um, he prioritizes, as a rule, the virtues as these grace means to achieving beatitude. Now, obviously, these, this list of seven, uh, seven virtues, the theological and cardinal virtues, is not intended to be exhaustive. Um, he also mentions in each of these parts allied virtues, which come along with it. Patience, for example. Um, and uh, so there are, are plenty of daughter virtues. There are plenty of what he calls potential parts of the virtue. These are smaller virtues, smaller actions, kinds of types of action that can lead to a, a greater appropriation of the larger virtue. Okay, Dante, to change the subject slightly, uh, Dante, at first blush, doesn't seem to follow this system whatsoever. All right? So we're done now. You can go. No. Um, the, uh, Dante, he starts with, of course, the Inferno, which is, of course, a, a radical depiction of evil, uh, departing uh, quite a bit from the treatment of Aquinas. Here we start with a, a radical depiction of vice, of selfishness, and oftentimes the souls within the inferno vie for Dante's attention. They still are plagued by pride. There's no praise of anyone else, except maybe some people back upstairs in the normal world. Um, it's really a descent into the vices that touches on uh, really the innermost faculties of the human person. And so Dante depicts himself and Virgil descending, first of all, through incontinence and then the circles of fraud and then down to the lake of Cocytus, this awful 
by the way, hell and Dante's. Uh, how many of you have read Dante? Okay. Very brief recap of Dante. Dante goes on a spiritual journey uh, in his 35th year. Why 35? Because that's half 70, which is, you know, a man lives to 70 years or 80 for those who are strong in the Psalms. And uh, he, uh, he depicts himself being lost in a dark wood and then is, is met by uh, his favorite author, Virgil, the shade of Virgil, who directs and conducts him down through on a journey through the underworld, through the inferno. And then he moves from the inferno to Mount Purgatory. And at the end of Mount Purgatory, when he comes to the summit of Mount Purgatory, he arises into the celestial spheres beyond the world and uh, coming into the heavenly spheres and uh, describes all of this in, in uh, beautiful poetry. Uh, the Divine Comedy is divided into three parts, those three parts that I just described. Each part is broken down further into uh, 33 cantos. There are 100 cantos uh, in the entire work. Well, where does the other one come from? It's the introductory canto at the very beginning of the Inferno. So that brings you a little up to speed. Um, so really, uh, uh, Dante is trying to describe what he believes to be the... Uh, he's moving on a spectrum from what he believes to be the, the, the least troubling sins in terms of how they directly touch upon the human spirit to the most troubling ones. And he moves from uh, incontinence in lust, gluttony, avarice, wrath, all these, these, uh, these kinds of uh, incontinence with respect to, to uh, the passions of the soul. And then he moves into uh, the violence, violence against neighbor, against self, against God. And then he moves down into the circles of fraud, which he sees as a greater spiritual evil to, uh, to actually bend the truth. Um, and lists a whole series of ten different types of fraud. But at the very bottom of the inferno, which, by the way, is not fiery flames and, you know, snakes and things like that. It is a pool of ice. Ice created by, the, um, by one of the rivers which flows throughout the whole of the, um, uh, the inferno, right to the bottom, and also created by the tears of... Uh, the devil, the tears of, of Lucifer, who is trapped in this well of ice. And uh, he fans the ice, attempting to try to get out. But of course, all he's doing is freezing his tears and the water which comes in. He's only getting himself deeper and deeper into it, as it were. Um, 
Well, you might ask, uh, what happens to the traditional vices here? What happens to, to uh, pride and envy? Well, pride and envy are present throughout the Inferno. Uh, they are present in the, the pride of the various sinners who seem to be quite glad to tell Dante about their, uh, their greatness in the life that went on beforehand, but uh, quite reluctant to talk about their sin. Um, envy can be seen in uh, the horrible way some of these individuals treat one another. Um, they, uh, two of the of the, uh, uh, those imprisoned down in the depths of the Inferno are, for example, gnawing on one another. They're frozen in the ice, one on top of the other. One is, is gnawing on the skull of the other. Right? It's a, a very horrific kind of, of image. Um, we can then see how this might touch at least on the system of, of vice as Aquinas would have understood it. Uh, vice as the opposite of virtue is, a, is an inclination, a, a habit, a bad habit, as it were, and one that does not make one uh, make an action more voluntary, but less voluntary because it becomes part and parcel of that kind of uh, uh, reflex action I was talking about before. They, the system, though, is basically the same as Gregory the Great's system of the vices. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. By the way... Um, the Middle Ages considered those, those sins which we in our society tend to consider as the worst, that is, lust and gluttony, the, the fleshly sins, we might say. They usually considered those as the, as the least, you know, as the, the, the least important of the, the capital sins. They, uh, the more important were the ones that, that touched more deeply on the soul. Uh, pride, envy, wrath, and so forth. So, uh, if you want an acronym for remembering this handy-dandy list, hail gas, pride, anger, lust, envy, uh, gluttony, avarice, sloth. Uh, hail gas. Um, it's really in the Purgatorio, though, that we begin to see a greater likeness to Aquinas' teaching. And that should be a, at least a, uh, a maybe that's a, that's a terribly obvious point, where we, Dante and Virgil crawl to the bottom of Cositus, and they wind up at, in the very pit of Cositus is, is Lucifer, uh, who has three heads, by the way. It's kind of an infernal trinity. And in each of their mouths, they're gnawing on, on uh, a traitor, traitor to their lords. Of course, Lucifer, or Beelzebub himself, is the prime analogate for this. Um, he's gnawing on, on Brutus and Cassius, and Judas Iscariot that is in the middle mouth receiving a particularly gruesome torture. So... 
they escape down, uh, climbing down the body of, of Lucifer until they, they get to a point where, and this is ingenious, Dante knew of this, you know, long before, because he, he knew enough about classical geometry and classical sciences, that the point of gravity, which gravitation would change, right, in the, in the center, and he starts, they start climbing up. They start climbing up to the mountain of the Purgatorio. Um, Purgatorio um, is an island mountain. It's formed, the geography of the, of the, the comedy, this island is formed as a kind of result of the impact crater of Lucifer being thrown down from heaven. He hits the surface of the earth. This is what creates the great well of, of the Inferno. And on the other side is a, a mountain, which is appropriate considering that the mountain is meant to undo everything that has been going on in the Inferno. This uh, mountain is... Uh, this ascent up the mountain, again, is in the order of vices, but a slightly different order than the Inferno. We start off with uh, pride, then with envy, then with wrath, then sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. The traditional ordering of these, uh, of these sins. He again is starting with sin. So... You might be asking, how can we say that, that he's really influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas? And this is a, this is a major question among scholars. Um, how influenced is Dante by the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas? Well, he did study in Florence at both the Franciscan and the Dominican schools. He uh, has in the Paradiso one of the longest dialogues between himself and, uh, and a soul is with St. Thomas Aquinas, who appears in not less than four cantos, speaking, he's, uh, you might think he's kind of long-winded, but um, St. Thomas uh, is, is held up within the, the whole <coughs> of the Paradiso as a preeminent figure, and it's this that helps us to see that, that Dante really did respect while not necessarily follow him in, uh, in every detail. In, the, uh, in this description of these different uh, vices, um, Dante talks about, Dante presents the entrance into purgatory as though it were a kind of, we might say, a kind of confession. There are three steps into the, the gate. Uh, one step is, uh, is bright white marble that is finished to a, a, a great polished sheen so that he can see his reflection in it. One step is, uh, is a, a kind of blood red cracked. And uh, the last step is um, get this right. The last step is is uh, the step leading right into the the initial stages of of uh, purgatory, 
and uh, an angel is, is sitting on that set. The, the three sets are considered to be a representation of the three traditional stages of, of uh, confession. That would be the three requirements, really. Contrition, confession, and, uh, and penance. He, he travels through this, is given seven uh, wounds on his forehead in the shape of a, the letter P, or peccatum, or sin. And as he moves up the mountain, he had, uh, there's an angel at each stage, at the end of each area, that wipes one of those away. But the way in which each level is set up, they, uh, Dante enters into the level... They, um, there are a number of different ways of describing it. It's like a different kind of stage on the mountain that goes surrounds the mountain. You can think of the mountain as almost built like a like a wedding cake going up. Um, they uh, each stage offers first of all uh, some exemplar, exemplar of a virtue which is the contrary virtue to the vice that's being described, the vice that's being punished. And in this sense, Dante starts each part with the, a virtue that combats the vice. And so, obviously, for pride, that first stage, it's going to be humility. I'd just like to go through just... Just very briefly, I realize I don't have very much more time here, but uh, just go through very briefly <coughs> just what happens on that, that first terrace. Um, on that first terrace, uh, Dante and uh, Virgil uh, come up and they see on the, the wall of the terrace is beautiful, a beautiful relief. And the relief is uh, a series of, of moments in um, both scripture and classical literature. There's first one of the Annunciation of Our Lady and the angel Gabriel in the moment of the Annunciation. And she is saying, and Dante can hear, in a certain sense, the, the sculpture speaking to him, saying, this is a work of fiction, okay? So, so saying, to, uh, saying to him, be it done to me, unto me according to your word. There's the second episode, is the episode of King David dancing before the ark of the Lord, humbling himself, not wearing his kingly raiment, and showing his, uh, his wife, Michal, and proudly looking down, scorning him. The last incident shown is uh, an image of the Emperor Trajan, who reportedly delayed a journey in, uh, to, uh, to an important battle in order to judge a widow's case. So he, he came down off of his horse in order to, uh, in, in humility, to address this situation before he went to... Uh, uh, went forward. This kind of humility is also allied at, um, at the end of each of these terraces with one of the Beatitudes. 
So this same system, the Augustinian system, which was laid out by St. Augustine in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, now becomes uh, the, uh, a, a principal system of ordering in uh, Dante's Purgatorio. Um, so for each of these, we have uh, for pride, humility, envy, mercy, wrath, meekness, sloth, zeal, avarice, poverty, uh, gluttony, moderation, and lust, chastity, of course. So you get some, some idea here of, um, of these different kinds of sandwiched in between these these uh, the depiction of the of the opposing virtue, and at the very end, something which is called the the rain of uh, rain, as in you know horse rain to direct the direct to the beast, right? Um, a series of counter examples, a series of examples of the vice, as it were, as something which leaves the pilgrims. Uh, with an absolute uh, detestation of the of the vice, so sandwiched between these is the punishment of purgatory, where these souls, in contradistinction to the souls in in the inferno, these souls are uh, are uh, they're they're somewhat chatty actually. They're they're uh, they're charitable. They are um, they're asking for prayers. They desire to, uh, to make it to the pinnacle of purgatory because they desire happiness. They desire the ultimate happiness, which is the beatitude of seeing God face to face in the kingdom of heaven. And they, each one of them, need to make their way up the mountain. They realize that. They realize that they are saved. It's only a matter of, of working out. And they're happy to be Working, working this out, as it were. Um, for the punishment of pride, of course, the, the individuals who are in this terrace have this enormous weight of marble on their backs, these big stones. I'm not sure if it's marble. I think it's just big stones, which force them to look down. Dante is incredibly moved by this because he knows what his ruling sin is. Each and every one of us is, because of our individual makeup, perhaps more subject to one of these vices than another. And um, he knows that he is a proud person, that he, uh, he will be suffering in this terrace when it comes to be his time. And so he crouches down to speak to, to those who are in this particular terrace. And while they make their way, they have to make their way around the mountain. While they're making their way around the mountain, there are these counter-examples, uh, these examples of pride, which are made into reliefs along the the. Uh, along the ground. And as they pass, they walk over these examples. They tread on them. It's a rejection of that. They are both physically emulating the, 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 um, 
the virtue of humility. And they're also treading on, crushing the, uh, the examples of the vice. So what we find in Dante, then, is something, a system, which is, um, even though it might not seem like it from just looking at it on the face value, it is indeed a system inspired by Catholic tradition, the ordering of the, of the vices, but also the ordering of the contesting virtues, which is really in agreement with the way that St. Thomas would would depict those contending virtues as well and their opposed vices. Um, in all of this, they, if, I think it's important just to see where both St. Thomas and Dante agree. In each of these levels, I've mentioned that they, they involve some sort of punishment which is meant to... Um, is meant to encourage the souls that are suffering them to unburden themselves of uh, the vice, the typical action of the vice. And this is precisely the way in which St. Thomas, and if you want to look back even farther, uh, Aristotle would talk about cultivating a virtue. For Aquinas, cultivating a virtue is, is always about performing an action in accord with the virtue. You want to think back to the example I gave earlier about the pianist, the concert pianist playing. Uh, that iteration of practice helps that person to do this action more and more perfectly. In a similar way, if we wish to acquire a virtue, we need to act to do the actions of the virtue. Oftentimes people wind up thinking, well, I, I, I don't really feel like doing that. And if I f don't feel like doing it, is it, can I really say it's sincere? Well, let's take a virtue like charity. Right? Charity is desiring or willing, sorry, willing the good of the other as though it were our own. And in this sense, it he doesn't say feel the good of the other or, you know, desire the good of the other. He says willing it. And it's in this sense that if we know the good of the other person, even though we don't like the other person, even though we might not be best buds, we can still perform the good, do the good, to seek their good, even if it's simply something is addressing them charitably or courteously. It's in this way that we are meant to grow in virtue and move away from vice, to encourage these uh, lesser virtues like humility and uh, the lesser virtues that, are, that were mentioned as the antidotes to the, to the seven deadly sins, but also in desiring and carrying out the actions in accord with the appropriate virtues along the way. And so it's by means of that, and prayer, and of course, grace, because um, each of these virtues, the cardinal virtues, receives that help of the Holy Spirit, uh, that kind of strengthening of the Holy Spirit, 
to be able to carry us to a much higher end, a higher object than they were before. For the ancients, uh, prudence, temperance, uh, justice, um, and fortitude were just ordinary, the ordinary virtues meant to bring us to the good life within the polis. For Aquinas, these are virtues which are meant to carry us even to the kingdom of heaven. And so Aquinas and Dante are both uh, extolling a system of virtuous action that transforms the human person from being someone prone to sin. That person is transformed through the gift and grace of the Holy Spirit given in baptism and uh, completed in confirmation. And it gives that person uh, a new end, a new uh, beginning, uh, and it vivifies the virtues. For both of them, they believe in this realist system, a system which focuses on the end, on beatitude and the good. And it's because of this that I believe that Dante was indeed inspired by the virtue theory of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you, Father, for being here. Thank you to all of you for, for making the trip into the ICC. You mentioned that in the medieval times, the sins of like the sins of the flesh were viewed as lesser sins than you know sins like pride. Is that just a result of them being so common? I guess it's like sort of a universal aspect of human nature that that it's part of our appetites that those things happen. Is that why they viewed it as such, or is there another reason? Um, those uh, the, so the question is about uh, what, why the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, thought of the um, the sins of of gluttony and lust as kind of lesser sins compared to the uh, the others, and that's mainly because of the 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 part of the soul that that these were um, damaging, as it were, the lower parts of the soul, the the um, the the passions, these uh, 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 contending and uh, or irascible and concup- concupiscible passions. So, because that was involved, a lesser part of or a lower part of the of um, of the human person, they were co- considered as as less. Uh, uh, less serious. They, now, don't get me wrong. These are still serious things. They're serious sin, but they're not as serious as something like pride or wrath, for example. So, yeah. With the ordering of Dante's sins, you say that there's any correspondence between the, although very serious, the, the less previous being so the question is about uh, how grievous how grievous sins are in relation to uh, the cardinal and the uh, theological virtues. So sins which would be against something like 
faith. Yeah. Or, well, um, uh, sins against faith are indeed, uh, you know, uh, can be very grave in the sense of, of they, these, the theological virtues are the virtues that join us with God. And so, and really, uh, those theological virtues are, are uh, the necessary link that we have with God. So um, to act against, directly against one of those virtues, faith, hope, or love, um, is, um, is obviously a very, a very grave thing. Uh, to act imprudently, well, you know, all of us have done that, I think. Um, probably not in a you know really serious way. Maybe some of us have actually, uh, but, <laughs> but um, you know so that 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 admits of a greater degree of you know of of diversity in a sense. Um, does that does that help? Okay. Um, thanks. Thank you for your talk. It was great. Uh, so. Um, Dante is accompanied by Virgil, and we also see Trajan as an example of, um, you know, a virtue, again, um, contra, a vice and purgatory. Are, are we supposed to, like, glean anything about the, uh, the salvation of, like, non-Christians by, by his accompaniment of, with these people and, uh, these, you know, virtuous pagans before... For Christ, and um, so does that. Does that say something about what Dante thought of that, and what is what does he think compared to like what Thomas says about that? If he says it? Okay, that's a really good question because uh, so the question is about uh, um, does Dante believe uh, that there's uh, something funny going on in terms of of the salvation of of pagans and and that kind of thing. Uh, in because he includes all of these different uh, different classical figures uh, on the road in purgatory, and it, as a matter of fact, he does meet up with three characters there at the very beginning of purgatory. He meets up with Cato, who, by the way, you know, uh, killed himself. Um, so that's you know that's a kind of a strange a strange kind of juxtaposition here. Um, the second person he meets up with is uh, he we see is as an example of virtue is uh, exactly what you said Trajan, and then the last person that we see is Statius, who is a classical poet who uh, was a pagan, and uh, Dante kind of uses a little bit of poetic license to to say that Statius and his uh, you know, and his deathbed convert made a kind of a deathbed conversion. All right, so he's he's rather keen on placing his favorite authors in uh, prominent places in, in his work. Um, there are a couple of things here. First of all, uh, Dante is not here trying to provide us with a uh, what he thinks is a, a literal kind of presentation of he's he's presenting us. Uh, a literary view. And the work, the aim of the work, I believe, is intended to, to draw us to virtue, to, to the, the ultimate goal, which is God. But he is willing to employ a, a wide degree of, 
literary devices in order to do this. Uh, Cato is introduced at the very beginning because he kills himself. He's a member of the, he supported Pompey in the great campaign of the, the first triumvirate. And um, of course, when, when Caesar defeats Pompey, he is completely unwilling to see this dictator as the head of, the, of Rome. And so he kills himself. He falls on his own sword. Um, because he cannot tolerate um, uh, a loss of liberty. And for, uh, for Dante, it's his, uh, his passion, I suppose, for, for liberty, which makes him the, uh, the first representative that Dante and Virgil run into on the shores of purgatory, because this is going to be a driving force up the mountain, right? Um, uh, a passion for authentic liberty. And that's what, where the virtues lead us, is an authentic liberty, uh, something which makes us whole as human persons. So, and then Trajan, um, there's a story that... Um, I think it's Gregory the Great. I'm not sure which pope it was. He was reading a life of Trajan, and um, and he was so impressed with his his uh, human virtues that uh, he said a series of of masses for Trajan's soul. And so uh, our Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, "Okay, this time, but don't do it again." Okay. So, I think we have time for one more question. One more question. Okay, over here. Um, <clears throat> I'm really interested to hear what you think Aquinas would take into account agency. Um, because obviously there's this idea of virtue. And when we look at the virtue system that Aquinas builds, where is our role as humans? And where is it influenced by God? Is there a line? Is there... Because Agency assumes our ability to slip into vice or to strive towards virtue. So, what do you see the impact of agency having on this conversation? Agency is uh, uh, each and every person, according to Aquinas, would be would be free, uh, free to choose what to to choose beatitude. Right, and that's the that's the real choice is is to choose beatitude. He would say that every human person is is making a choice for happiness. Right? So, even the bank robber, by the way, is making a choice for happiness. What he understands happiness to be. Now, does that exonerate him? No, because the means he is using are, you know, are are evil. They're they're wicked. Uh, taking someone else's property. Um, so in terms of agency, the, the human person, even though they uh, receive this outpouring of grace in baptism and uh, the, the fulfillment of all of that grace in, in, in uh, confirmation, a kind of strengthening of that grace to, to make witness in confirmation, uh, this does not take away a person's freedom. 
Um, that's as a matter of fact is the foundation of the virtues. This is why Aquinas would say that that we acquire a virtue by means of of performing the action of the virtue, and that includes you know choosing to do it freely and choosing to do it not for you know for for the right end. So. Um, so agency is of utmost importance. Is that positive agency um, in terms of striving towards virtue? Or I know this might be leaning a little bit towards Dante here, or fear of punishment. Because I know that that's, like, there's, there isn't, it's both are mentioned, but would you think that Aquinas had more of a positive view of agency or a negative one? Positive view of agency. Because of what I said earlier about um, that notion of, of filial fear. Filial fear is really just another w- way to, to kind of talk about love, uh, the beloved, not to offend the beloved. Anybody who's, you know, wants to go out with someone, that's a major kind of fear, right? Because of love. Uh, and that's the same thing with, with Aquinas. He would say that um, that the, the use of something like servile fear, which is fear of punishment, is useful insofar as it actually, actually dissuades a person from, from doing something evil, from, from doing something that would be detrimental to, uh, to themselves. But it's not a perfect kind of, of fear. It's not the, the fear that leads to... Um, that leads to love. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.